So we are continuing our series on I Love My Neighbor today. Over the weeks, we have been learning about who our neighbors are, how to spot and avoid an enabler, or in ourselves maybe, we might be an enabler, you never know. And finally, we've learned how to speak truth to our neighbors as well. Now, over the years, I've learned something, and you've probably learned this too. There are people you can pick to be around you, right? We call those our friends. Those are the people we get to say, I want you to come to my house. I want you to eat dinner with me. I want you to get to know me. Those are the people we get to pick, right? We pick them. However, there are a whole lot more people we don't get to pick. We don't get to pick who? Our family. Kind of born into it, right? We don't get to pick our coworkers unless you're the boss, right? And then you can also dismiss those coworkers if you're the boss. And you can't pick your neighbors. You can't pick the people who are living around you. You may have picked them initially, but what if they decide to sell their house? And they move, and then some random person you've never met moves in, and they've got 35 children, 12 dogs, and a bunch of cats. And suddenly, you're stuck next to somebody you didn't realize was going to be there. You don't get to pick them. You think you do, but you don't. And it would be nice if we could pick. I would love to be able to pick out who my brother and my sister were. I love you, Jamie and Chris. But I didn't get to pick them. My parents didn't either. <laughs> we can't pick these folks, but as we've learned over the last few weeks, even though we don't get to pick them, they're still our neighbor. They're still the people that are around us. They're still the people that we have to minister to and the people that we have to get to know and love as God commanded us to love. Amen. Now, my question to you is, who are the easiest neighbors to love? The ones we agree with, right? We, it's a lot easier to get along with somebody when they see eye to eye with you, right? It's a lot easier when you have a lot of things in common. However, it's hard to love others, right, that are a little more difficult. Perhaps it's a neighbor that lets their dog do his business in your yard every day and doesn't clean it up. I had that happen for a long time before I moved. Now I just have deer who do it. Maybe they have uh, teenagers who throw parties every weekend until 2 in the morning and keep you up and your child. I've had that happen too. Maybe it's a neighbor that you know is cheating on their spouse. You know this. You've seen it. you watched it. Maybe it's a neighbor who you know is living in an open homosexual relationship. I know my last neighborhood right across the street. There was a, a lesbian couple. Maybe, and if you know about the different websites that can help you find these things, but perhaps your neighbor is somebody who has sexual predators stamped on their permanent record. And you've got kids, or you're a, a single mom living next door to these people. Perhaps it's a neighbor who just got out of jail. You've never, you've lived there for so long. You've seen a car there and you've never seen anybody go in there, but suddenly they show up and it's because they just got out of jail. Perhaps, perhaps your neighbor is somebody you actually saw walk out of an abortion clinic with a receipt in hand. Perhaps it's somebody who's in a religion that wants to destroy people in your religion. Ooh. And we call them terrorists. All of these different groups of people, they're difficult to love, right? Sadly, we live in a culture and a nation that has become extremely divided. 
extremely divided. And we've been divided along extremely hard lines. Like there is no gray with people anymore. It is conservative liberal, Christian atheist, right? I mean, it's hard cut. You can see it. And the, the tension in the room when you're with these people is thick, and you could cut it with a knife. And because of this, it's become exponentially more difficult to find it in ourselves to appropriately love our neighbors, right? It's become more difficult. I mean, Pastor talks about the days when he was younger, and they'd have block parties, and everybody, now, I don't, it might have been superficial love that they liked each other, and maybe it was just the food. I don't know. But block parties aren't things that are just going on anymore. Maybe in some neighborhoods, but not not most neighborhoods anymore, right? Even I can remember as a kid doing things like that. And it's no secret. We live in a fallen, sinful, divided world. And people are hard to love. So there's three questions that I'm hoping we can answer today. And I believe answering them will help us find a way to love those difficult people and others. The three questions are, how do we love the difficult to love? How do we live out the fruit of the Spirit with others, especially those who are unbelievers? And finally, how do we share and live out our faith in an attractive way without compromising the truth? And all these questions, I believe, are going to have to be answered if we're going to be able to, as the title of today's sermon states, live in the same neighborhood. Because we're going to live with these people, right? We got to. We are stuck. They are stuck with us. We are stuck with them. These are our neighbors. This is the context we live in, folks. And so we're going to have to learn how to deal with it. We're going to have to learn how to live with them. And if we don't, we're going to have a difficult time fulfilling our God-given purpose on this earth. So to set the stage for today, perhaps it might do us some good to read the words of Jesus concerning loving our neighbors. And you can read this with me. You don't have to stand up, but it's in Mark 12. And it's verses 30 through 31, and it says this. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, those are the words of Jesus. And he said the two greatest commands were what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Your neighbor as yourself. And then he said there was no other commandment greater than these two things. So clearly, there's a reason. Right? Clearly, he doesn't want us just to walk by with our heads down and our hands in our pockets and ignore our neighbors until we die. He wants us to be engaged. And we all want to love like God. I think in the church, we... Most of us will genuinely say we want to be able to love like God. We want to be able to be faithful to what he has commanded us. But oftentimes it's a whole lot easier said than actually done, right? Which brings us to our first question. How do we love the difficult to love? And there are three things that we're going to have to keep in mind when we come across a difficult person. So I think these three things will help us. And it's going to help me because I, I have a low tolerance for people that are annoying. <laughs> right? I'm just going to be transparent here. Um, none of you, of course, are in that category. All of you I love. But the first thing is this. We must remember 
where we came from. Many times in the Old Testament, God would remind the Israelites, especially with regard to their treatment of others, foreigners, others, widows, orphans, you know, the down on the luck, the poor, those people. He would remind them of where they came from. In Deuteronomy 24, in 17, verses 17 and 18, God is saying this to Israel. He says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. And therefore, I command you to do this. Right, he's talking about foreigners and orphans and widows. But we can pretty much apply this to everybody, right? Everybody at some point was a foreigner to us. Everybody had a father at some point. Everybody had a mother at some point. Many people will end up becoming widows. And it's easy to forget where we came from. That happened to Israel. They got into the promised land. God gave them all these blessings. And suddenly, slaves in Egypt, what's that? And God had to remind them. Israel, don't forget where you came from. You were slaves too. In fact, I'm the one that got you out. Not yourself. Not Moses. Moses was my tool, but it was me who got you out. Right? And it's easy to forget where we came from, especially when we're better off now than we once were. Right? We can look back at over our life and we can say, yeah, man, I remember way back then. Pastor talks about when he and Pastor T were living off of $5 for a week and ate macaroni and cheese for like two weeks straight. And they could probably look back on that and go, well, we were way better off today than we were then. At least we're not eating mac and cheese every single day of the week. Maybe you think that's a good thing. I don't know. If you're a mac and cheese lover. But there's many times that we forget. We don't want to think about it. We don't want anything to do with where we came from. We want to get as far away from our past as possible, especially if we have a dark past, right? I don't want to be remember I don't want to remember when I was that person. I was a bad person and I don't want anything to do with that person. But remembering where we came from is exactly what we need to do to keep us grounded in our interactions with other people who are now what we once were. We can love the difficult to love because we too were difficult to love at one point. And maybe still are. I'm not saying anybody in here is. Just saying. We too were once slaves to our sin, to our circumstances. And we too were difficult people to love. And God redeemed us. He pulled us out. And we have to remember where we came from because what he did for us, he can do for others. Amen? Which leads me to my second point, which is we must remember who Jesus came for. In the words of Jesus himself here in Luke, uh, chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, it says, Jesus answered to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, those who are, are sick, they're the ones that need help, right? Not the people who are well. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners 
to repentance. You see, Jesus was the conduit by which we, the enslaved, would be redeemed out of our sin and into righteousness before God. And this was the whole reason that Jesus came in the first place. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions, our our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. And upon him was the chastisement or the punishment. And it brought us peace, right? And it was with his wounds we are healed. That's what it says about Jesus. That's what the Old Testament said was the purpose of Jesus to come, which was to take on our punishment and to heal us and redeem us from our sin and from ourselves. So we have to remember where we came from and who Jesus came for. And finally, we have to remember why we are still here. Because I've already said we aren't just here to get along until we die. We have a purpose, right? In order to accomplish that, we need to know what that purpose is. And it's not, as some of us would probably like to believe, is build an empire unto ourselves. That is not our purpose. We are not here to build up ourselves and our house, even though that's not a bad thing. So don't misunderstand me. It's a good thing to take care of your house. In the New Testament, um, qualifications for leaders say how can a man take care of the house of God if he can't take care of his own house? So don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't do those things. But that's not our purpose. Our purpose isn't just to build up our own kingdom. We have come here for a reason. And the parting words of Jesus in Matthew 28 tell us what that reason is. I, I kind of quoted a little bit earlier. It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In order to accomplish that purpose, that's the purpose right there. In order to accomplish that, we have to come to a place where we can love the difficult to love. We have to. Because after all, Jesus loved the difficult to love first. He did it. He modeled it. And we've been called to be imitators of Christ. And if we want to be like Christ, we have to learn to love the difficult to love. And I believe that's much easier to do when we do remember these three things, that where we came from, right, who Jesus came for and why we're still here. We can keep those three things in our minds when we interact with those who are lost or difficult to love then I think that we will come to a realization that who we are dealing with is actually us. Think about it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, and he listed off a whole list of things, right? Liars and cheats and murderers and idolaters. And he looked at whoever he was writing the uh, the letter to, and he said, such were some of you. Not such are some of you, but such were some of you. You know, he's writing to the Corinthian church, who I think was probably getting a little puffed up about themselves. And Paul had to remind them, look, you you were these people. So who we're dealing with is actually ourselves. When we look at others that are difficult to love, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. And we have to learn. And when we come to that realization, it should bring a new compassion into our lives and move us in the right direction of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because when we realize that we're dealing with ourselves, just a different face, different hair color, different eye color, same person, 
Still an image of God. Still somebody that God came to die for and to redeem. Suddenly we get a, a new perspective on what we're doing. And I think that helps, if you will, lessen the blow of dealing with a difficult person because suddenly we realize I was that person. That's who I was. Now, I'm going to be fully transparent here. My only complaint about the Bible is that it's not wired for sound. Now, (laughs) I wish it was. Okay, I wish it was passed down to us in like a video documentary so we could see and hear how Jesus interacted with people. I mean, I'd love to see how he interacted with the Pharisees when he's calling them whitewashed tombs and, and serpents and things. That would be cool, right? But I would also love to hear how he is speaking to people who we know are lost, like the woman at the well when he says to her, Go get your husband so that we can talk some more. And she says, well, I'm not married. And he's like, you're right. You've been married five times, and the man you're with now isn't even your husband. Now, how did he say that? How do you think the tone came across? Because I'm just, if it was me who was saying it, it would not be as nice and compassionate as Jesus probably was. It would probably be a little smirk and a smirk on my face, a little snark in my tone. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> You've been married five times, lady. You know, I compassion out the window just like that but that's my only my only complaint about the bible is that i don't get to hear how jesus presented himself when he was talking to these people i have so many questions i mean how did these people respond like i would love to see their body language when that woman heard that she was probably like "Ooh," you know these things just help bring context and, and help you understand, okay, this is how, how am I supposed to be an imitator of Christ if I don't know how he sounded when he said that or what he looked like? What was his body posture? Was he standing, towering over top of her or was he sitting down? You know, like, what was he doing? Why is it that when he said that, her response was, I perceive you to be a prophet and not you bigot? How dare you? Don't judge me. Why didn't she say that? If we said that today, if I walked up to a woman that I know has been married five times and I said, go get your husband so we can study the Bible together. And she says, well, I'm not married. And you'd be like, yeah, you're right. You've been married five times. Like, Who are you to judge me? Right. So how is it? What did Jesus do? (laughs) How did he communicate these truths? Because this was truth. How did he confront people in their sin in such a way that he didn't get a backhand? or name called, or nasty letters in the mail. I will make a side note here. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus confronted people, the only people who responded back in hate were the religious? Did you ever notice that? It was the religious who sought to kill him, right? The other people followed him around, just hanging on his words. It was the religious who wanted to have him killed. So how did he do this? So how, how do we... Live like Jesus. And I think that Jesus lived in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit permeated every interaction, every word, every action that he made. Everything about him was immersed in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Which leads me to my next question. How do we live out the fruit of the Spirit with others, especially those who are unbelievers? So first, I think we need to know what the fruit of the Spirit is. And that's in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And I'm not going to read it, but I did list it, which is pretty much the same thing. 
because it literally is just a list of words. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love. It's joy. It's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, when we live out a Spirit-filled life, we take on these characteristics. When we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, that is the fruit. Those nine things. And that's what's meant by the fruit of the Spirit. And this is why Jesus was received the way that he was. Fact is, people who are of this world, they need to see a people who live as though they are not of this world. Because the people of this world are the exact opposite of those nine things. And they need to see a people who live these things. When we act like the world, is it any wonder that they don't come to us for answers? When we don't practice what we preach, is it any wonder that the first word out of the tongues of the lost are hypocrite? When we don't love like Jesus loved, is it any wonder that the world is confused about what love is? That's why it's important that we not only know what the fruit of the Spirit is, but we also learn how to live it out. Because we can sit here and say, okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control... We can say those words all day long, but if we don't know what they mean, we don't put them into practice, they're useless, right? You see, the Spirit of God rested powerfully on Jesus. You know, there's this great image of when he's being baptized, the Holy Spirit coming out of the heavens and resting over top of him, and God saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? Jesus lived it out every single moment of the day. There wasn't a moment Jesus didn't live these nine things. And we can know, even though the Bible is not wired for sound, we can know the posture that Jesus took when he approached people. We can know the tone in Jesus' voice when he talked to people. Why? Because it was rooted in these nine things. And when we learn what these nine things are and we apply them in our life, we can become true imitators of Christ in loving our neighbors. So what example did Jesus give us for loving our neighbors through the fruit of the Spirit? First, he came to them in love, right? He didn't come with ulterior motives. He didn't come to embarrass people. He didn't go to that lady at the well and call her out for her five marriages just to embarrass her. He didn't do that, right? He did it with pure motive. He didn't come bringing a gotcha moment. I'm, I'm a fan of gotcha moments. I'm not going to lie. I love getting people stumped where their jaws just hanging out. Did he really just, you know. But that's not how Jesus operated. He didn't just do that to make the jaws drop. He did that to pierce their heart, to prick their heart to open up their ears and their eyes to what he was about to say. There was a purpose behind it, a good purpose. He also came to them with joy. Why? Because he had the freedom, and he knew that freedom would set these people free. He knew what the answer was. He wasn't happy with their sin, but I believe he carried a supernatural joy of freedom around with him. Right? 
He came in peace. He knew who his, his enemy was. He knew that the lady at the well was not his enemy. He knew that her sin was his enemy. And he knew that her sin was rooted in evil darkness. Or as Paul states in Ephesians, those powers of darkness, those principalities, right? He knew that what he was wrestling against was not flesh and blood. It was rooted in the enemy 100%. You know, he came with patience, kindness, and goodness. He didn't lose his cool even though situations might have gotten tough. He would draw people into himself through his kindness and goodness towards them. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, you know, use appropriate force when necessary, right? There were times that he did. He demonstrated faithfulness to his friends. They all abandoned him on his day of need. Every last one of them, except for apparently John, who went and got his mom. Even Peter <laughs> denied him three times as he stood in the dark trying to hide away from people. And yet, when Jesus came back, did he go and hold it over Peter's head? What did he do? He looked at him and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, no, you know I do. Feed my sheep. He said that three times. You know what I think he was telling him? I forgive you. Three times. You deny me three times, I forgive you for each one of those. That's Jesus. He was gentle. He knew when to be gentle. And I imagine that his tone with the prostitute who was about to be stoned was probably in a little bit more gentleness than just, you know, is anybody standing here to condemn you? Good, now get out of here and don't sin again, woman. He probably didn't do that, right? I mean, she was already embarrassed. She was already being brought out in the middle of the public. She was about to be stoned. I mean, you can't get much more low than that. He had no reason to bring a harsh tone on her at that moment. Her actions were already drawing the public eye, if you will. And at that moment, he still confronted her sin, but with gentleness and kindness. And finally, he showed great self-control. You know, he also knew when he needed a little bit more um, gusto in his uh, interactions with people. Think about the money changers in the temple, right? He had a righteous anger. It says that he premeditatively went, built a whip, came back, turned tables over, and whoosh, Indiana Jones that place up. I'm sorry, you're looking at that picture, and that's not the meek, gentle, kind. That's, that's, that's warrior Jesus in action right there. And he run them out, right? Now, that's because he knew at that moment he was dealing not with the people per se, but with the sin that was taking place. They had turned the house of God into a den of thieves, is what he said. He was upset. He was angry, righteously and correctly, not because they offended him, but because they offended the Father. See the difference? I can go in, I can tear up, you know, a strip joint. I can flip tables, whatever, and, you know, chew people out and run them out. You know, and while that's, that's a problem, is it because it offends me or is it because it offends God? You know what I'm saying? We need to address these things appropriately and we have to come with the right motivation that jesus did when he showed great self-control there were times i think about it when he was in his own hometown and he's preaching to him and he's reach, pre preaching out of isaiah and he says what i just read i'm that guy and they get mad and they try to run him out of town to kill him right 
Now, he could have totally, you know, supernatural tornadoed something and been like, and dispersed them, right? Instead, he just walked right through them. He said, you know, prophet will be, will not be welcome in his own hometown, and he left, right? I mean, if somebody's coming up at you and getting ready to stone you, you're, you probably want to be like, all right, let's go. You want to go? That's not what Jesus did. He could have, and he had every right. He's God. You don't just come up against God like that. But he didn't. He showed great self-control. And the amazing part is this. We can do just as Jesus did. Because the same spirit that rested upon him and graced him with this fruit also rests on us and graces us with that fruit. Why? Because we are spirit-filled children of God. And we can do just as Jesus said and did. And he said that we would. In fact, he said we would do more. In other words, it's through the Holy Spirit that the people of this world can see us as a people from out of this world. Truly loving our neighbor in a biblical way requires supernatural assistance, doesn't it? It does. Now, answering these questions about loving the difficult and living out the fruit of the Spirit, I think we're naturally drawn to what would come next, which is the pragmatic. How do we put things into practice, right? Or the love in action, if you will. And as we've discussed in previous messages, loving our neighbor does not require a compromise of the truth or an enablement of somebody in their sin. However, I believe loving our neighbors is situational. Not every situation that you're in contact with a neighbor is going to be the same as, say, Ms. Dot with somebody, right? You have different friends, different people, different situations, and you're going to have to address each one individually. So while I would love to just sit here and give you example after example after example, we could spend days coming up with examples and then trying to figure out how the Bible would uh, teach us to approach them right so we could spend days doing that but what i think is that if we can grasp a few things that don't change no matter the situation then we can better equip ourselves for all situations right and what better way to do that than understanding what love actually is because in first corinthians 13 4 through 7 paul tells us we don't have to wonder he tells us And this is what it says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, We've read that. We're familiar with that passage, right? I mean, that's like one of the top ten popular verses of the Bible. The funny part is none of us actually apply it, do we? If we're honest, we don't all apply it 100%. We might apply some of it. I mean, I'll be honest. I love the truth, and I rejoice with it, but I get irritable. (laughs) I'm just being serious and transparent. I don't live out all of these, and I don't think any of us can say that we do. But if we can grasp these pieces of love and apply them and do better at being consistent, I think we're going to find that loving our neighbor will become a little bit easier. 
So for, with that, with these verses in mind, let's just look real quickly at seven practical foundations for loving my neighbor. Now, I didn't list them up here, so I just wanted you to listen. If you want to write them down, go for it. This will be up on YouTube later, so you can always go back and listen and write whatever. But I'm literally just going right through these verses and pulling them out. So the first one is this. Love is patient and kind. I think it's kind of a dub. But for each situation that we must approach our neighbor with patience and kindness. They may not be saved. They may not have come from the same background that we have. They may not have the truth in them like we do. Therefore, extra care has to be taken to be patient with them. Because what might be easy for us to grasp, because we have Holy Spirit eyes and Holy Spirit ears, may not be as easy for them to understand because they don't have that same, you know, gifting, right? They're not gifted with the Spirit. They're lost. They're in the dark. You're helping them figure this out, things they aren't familiar with. And while we're being extra careful with our patience and our kindness towards them, we also should be praying and hoping for the Spirit to remove the scales from their eyes and using our moment of kindness and love to draw them into himself. Right? Second, love does not envy or boast. We should not enter into a relationship with our neighbor with the purpose of boasting about what we have done for others. Have you ever heard or ever seen people who do things for people and then they go take it to Facebook or they want to call everybody and let them know what I've done for so-and-so? I helped them do this. Aren't, aren't you so proud? I'm such a nice guy. You don't boast in that. Because at that point, we're doing the opposite of making much of Christ. Because we're making much of ourselves. In addition, we cannot be envious or jealous of others who appear to be seeing a greater harvest than we are. Right? Have you ever seen somebody, man, it's like every day they've led somebody to the Lord. You're like, how did the heck? What? I, I've been talking with this person for 12 years and they still hate Jesus. You walked in and they gave their heart to Jesus just like that. We can't be jealous of that. We should rejoice in that. You know, Paul himself said, you know, I'm, I, I plow and, and Apollos waters, but it's Christ who brings growth to the seed, right? It's not our, we just fulfill a role. We, we do what God has commanded us to do. God takes care of the rest. If he does that after 12 years of us plowing and some dude walks in with a little bucket of water, dumps it on the spot and boom, something changes. Don't get mad. Get glad. You saw that coming, didn't you? Seriously. Rejoice. We do this because Christ loved us first. We don't do this to check off boxes of how many people we've led to the Lord or how many people we've loved. Third, love is not arrogant or rude. My question to you is, what do we have to be arrogant about? Remember where we came from. What do we have to be arrogant about? We were once slaves to our sin nature at one time, but it was only by the grace of God that we are no longer slaves. Amen? What right do we have to be arrogant about our position with God now? That much. Sometimes our actions with loving our neighbors is met with not kindness but rudeness. I've actually had people give me the stink eye and say mean things because I held the door for them. Feminists. Don't, I don't need you to hold the door for me. I'm 
I can get the door. I've actually had that happen. Somebody chewed me out for holding the door for him. I was like, okay, sorry to hear that. But this doesn't mean that we return rudeness with rudeness, right? We don't. It's hard for a person like me because I have a quick tongue. And if somebody snaps at me, I'm going to snap back. And that's something I've got to work on in myself, but I'm sure I'm probably not the only one, right? But we must, as the fruit of the Spirit bestows upon us, be more self-controlled and not return rudeness with rudeness. Fourth, love does not insist on its own way. Sometimes we're given divine appointments that don't line up with our idea of convenient (laughs) or even doable. But God has opened those doors for a reason, and we should not make a deal with God about loving our neighbor when it's more convenient or more doable in our own eyes. All that is saying to God is that we want to do it on our terms. All right, God, I know you opened this door, but... How about, let me just wait until I've got more money. Or let me wait until I've got more time. Then I'll do it. See, we're insisting on it being in our own way, right? We're loving people, but only how we want to do it, right? But that's not what God's, call, God's called us to do. Fifth, love is not irritable or resentful. Some people joke about this, but some are dead serious. But have you ever had someone say they will help you with something and then either A, they hold it over your head for later in life when they need a favor? Or B, they bring it up back up when they need help by saying, you remember when I helped you with this? Could you help me with that? It's not cool. And it usually breeds what? Resentment. You look at the person, you're like, man, I'm never going to help you again because you're going to hold it over my head. You're just going to, you're going to hold it on until there comes a moment you need me. And then you'll bring it back up and suddenly I owe you. Right? But we can't. We cannot get irritated with that. It's frustrating for sure. But we cannot allow it to put us in a place of irritation and resentment towards people. And then putting up a wall saying, I'm not going to help people because they might do this. Yeah, they might. But that's not our call. God didn't say, love your neighbor as yourself, unless they hold it over your head, and then don't worry about loving people anymore. It's not what he said at all. Number six, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? The truth. The truth. And this is where the no compromise aspect of loving our neighbors comes in. We want to help others. We want to love others. But we cannot, under any circumstance, rejoice or assist in their sin. Right? I'm not going to advocate for my neighbor to marry their same-sex partner. I'm not. I'm not going to go to the state house and stand on their behalf and say they should be able to marry this person. When I know for a fact that God's word says a man and a woman only. Right? It's not because I don't love them. It's because I know that that's a sin. And I have been commanded to love somebody is not to rejoice in that, but to love the truth. I'm not going to lie for my neighbor when his spouse who suspects him of cheating on her asks if he was around all weekend while they were gone. I'm not going to go, oh, yeah, 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 he was. I'm not going to cover for him. That's covering his sin. You're white. You did this to yourself, son. Your wife asked, yes, he was gone. I saw him with another woman. I'm just going to be real. Now, there's probably a nicer way, a more compassionate way to deliver that kind of news. 
But we shouldn't find ways to not speak the truth just because it gets a little uncomfortable. Seventh and finally, love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. In other words, we put up with a lot and we endure a lot. That's what love does, right? We put up with a lot and we endure a lot. We hope a lot and we believe a lot. All for the sake of loving another into a relationship with Christ. We do those because through that, may they be led to Christ. We don't do it because we're sadistic. We, we don't desire to hurt ourselves or to be in pain the whole time. We do it because Christ put up with us. <laughs> How many years have we spit in his face and he still loved us and he still saved us? Others do the same and we must endure it. We must believe the best, hope for the best, endure even when it becomes difficult. And knowing that should give us a great hope and faith that God will do the same for them that he did for us. So when we see so these are all the all of the aspects of love. And when we we look at each one and we look at our situations, it becomes a little bit easier to digest. How am I supposed to respond in this situation? Well, what would love do? Right. WWLD. Don't make that bracelet. That'd be a bad idea. But if you do, it's mine. I patented that. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves. The following statement. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Whew. Loving our neighbors is not easy. No one said it was going to be. But love we must. Becoming vulnerable to our neighbors is risky and costly. But vulnerable we must become. Because it is through this love, through this vulnerability, through this transparency that the greatest acts of God will be found. So let us commit today, let us commission our souls today that we're going to love our neighbors supernaturally. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer.